Hello and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am so delighted to say that this podcast is brought to you by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. Alighieri is a collection of jewellery inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Each piece corresponds to one of the poet's 100 poems. As the pilgrim journeys through the realms of hell, purgatory and paradise, he encounters mythical creatures, scraggy landscapes and terrible terrifying demons. Just like Dante's subjects, each piece of jewellery is battered, imperfect and a little bit melancholy. Every piece tells a story, embodying a modern heirloom that will travel with you on your own adventures. I am so excited to announce that from August the 1st to the 22nd, the gates of Alighieri Old Town will be open, bringing loved ones together to reunite, shop, dine and explore in an old Italian piazza placed in the centre of London. Close to Old Street Station, Fordingley Dingley Place will be transformed into an Italian utopia, transporting you to the holiday that 2020 has not yet allowed. The town will offer Alighieri's signature modern heirlooms, bespoke talismans, flash treasure trove discounts and one-of-a-kind souvenirs. In the heart of the piazza lies Casa Luna, the town's oldest restaurant where they serve antipasti, hand-rolled pasta and dolce. Visit alighieri.co.uk for more details and to book your shopping appointment in the Alighieri Old Town or to book dinner at Casa Luna. Meanwhile, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online orders to Refuge. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the sensational artist Loi Hollowell. Recognised for her paintings that evoke bodily landscapes and sacred iconography, Loi uses geometric shapes and a vibrant and electric colour palette to move a figure or its actions into abstraction. Originating in autobiography, her pulsating and psychedelic work explores themes of sexuality, often through allusions to the human form with an emphasis on women's bodies. First appearing as highly textured two-dimensional works, witness them in real life and her works evolve from flat geometric masterpieces into an almost sculptural sphere through a fascinating approach to volume, surface and texture that at once give the illusion of expanding and contracting, merging and converging. Having grown up in Northern California in the 80s and 90s and now based in Queens in New York, Loey holds a BA from UC Santa Barbara and an MFA in painting from Virginia Commonwealth University, where she first explored her fascinating approach to figuration. 
Through tightly rendered sculptural paintings, Lowy is reimagining the way we don't just see, but experience women's bodies in painting, referencing a myriad of painterly vocabularies, such as the almond-shaped mandala, which has been used heavily across our history. Recent exhibitions include at Pace in both New York and London, the latter of which I was lucky enough to witness, and she has also just been the subject of an online presentation with the gallery titled Going Soft about her work made throughout lockdown. Loey Hollowell, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so nice to talk to you. I love your voice so much. Your introductions are amazing. It's just the tone and the rhythm and the like, the sing-songness of it. You're just so excited. I love it. <laughs> so thank yes, you. let's talk. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I mean, I have been so excited and have wanted to speak to you for so long after having witnessed your work first at Victoria Miro's Surface Work Exhibition, which explored 100 years of female abstract painters from Paul A. Vézelay to Elizabeth Murray, and then at your solo exhibition at Pace nearly two years ago, which just still fills me with such fascination and excitement because witnessing one of your works in the flesh is honestly mind-blowing. They almost turn into these living and breathing beings with their sculptural elements and organic use of line. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, how would you describe your painting from the outside? That's such a hard question to answer when you're in the making of it. You know, it's like, how do you stand outside of yourself and describe yourself as a person? You know, I'm dealing with my body and breaking my experiences of my own body into geometric forms and trying to use the rectangle of the canvas as a landscape in which to kind of situate these experiences that I have. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I come to my work as like an architect or trying to create like a blueprint of an experience. But I do really look at the work of my contemporary female artists in New York. And if I think of myself as some kind of regional maker, the women that I'm looking at are pretty different from what I do. But we're all kind of looking at our body or the body of women around us or the kind of cultural patriarchal gaze of the body and critiquing it in some way. I'm thinking yeah. of like Beaver's or Julie Curtis, or Claire. Do you know Clarity Haynes? No, who's that? Clarity Haynes is a figurative painter. She paints the torso of different female-identifying women, but just the breasts and belly. And they're just gorgeous, fleshy, beautiful bodies of skin. But yeah, someone like Clarity Haynes and Julie and Gina are all these peripheral women I'm thinking about as I work out my own bodily experiences. Totally. I find that so much of your work is so much as well about the experience of being a woman, a pregnant woman, a woman who has given birth, a woman in today's world. I mean, why are you interested in this subject? It's the only subject that I know I can speak to completely honestly. It's mine to critique it's mine to own. It's my body. It's my experiences. And that way, I feel like I will never have to defend anything because I can just say this is an honest experience and I don't care how you interpret it. So I've made work in the past that was figurative, but I felt like I was taking a more didactic approach 
to depicting the figure and make a cultural critique that extended beyond what I knew. And it led to confrontational and interesting grad school critique. But I was more interested in finding an experience of phenomenological form. And with paint, there's just an abundance of ways to go about doing that. That I felt like when I just looked at myself in an abstract way and through the lens of how to break apart these experiences through color, light, space, texture, composition, you know what I mean? These things that are present for everyone. Yeah. That it gave me a more open-ended and fun way of painting. I also feel like as I moved into making the painting shapely, I was also thinking about the experience of touch for the first time. And I haven't done it yet, but I really want to make my paintings just purely physical so that you could like come into the dark space and experience these paintings. They're actually rectangular sculptures. Yeah. And for someone who can't see or for anyone, everyone who comes into this dark space, yeah, <laughs> like be put on the equal footing of feeling the work. I don't know how to go about doing that, but I just, I like the idea of a non-visual painting. No, totally. I get that because I think that's what you were speaking earlier about. You know, how do you kind of construct the female body into these geometric shapes or something? And that's, I think, why so many people connect with your work or so many women connect with it because your work it's like I've never seen something like this before I remember so well I mean first of all seeing the work at the Victoria Mirror show as an image and I was like oh my gosh this is stunning and I've never even seen anything like it and then when you see it in the flesh it just becomes this other being it's like it breathes off the canvas wow jeez yeah I mean (laughs) that is intentional. I'm glad you have that experience. And that experience happens for you because of the way you're responding to these formal elements, the light, the color, the texture. And then also that's enhanced by these dimensional spaces that I'm giving to it, which you really do have to see in person. You can't get that experience in a photograph. But I want that initial experience of the viewing to be one that kind of sits back in your retina and retains a presence or just has like some kind of energy that lasts a little bit longer. But you're not thinking of it like that sparks this kind of conversation, but it more has a visual thing that's kind of undescribable. It's like I will just never forget my experiences of being in front of your work as you almost kind of feel the body turned inside out or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in a way a good description of how I come about composing the work is trying to think of a way to articulate an experience that is so internal, but put it out onto like the skin of the canvas and externalize it. But I'm so interested because, you know, if you look back at the history of art, it's full of depictions of the female body that are mainly portrayed by a white cis male gaze. I mean, how do you find that women's bodies have been portrayed in our history? And do you find that you are trying to challenge that perception of the female body at all? Am I trying to challenge that perception? That's a loaded question because I became a painter because of my father, who is a painter, who got his MFA at Yale in the 70s and comes out of a long history of that way of depicting the body. And my mom was his muse. Wow, that's so interesting. In the nude, 
throughout my whole childhood, there's paintings of my mom, either in a leotard or naked. And I really fought against his lack of awareness as to how easily he was able to come to that. And I think as I realized I wanted to become a painter, I realized I couldn't just blindly take that subject matter because there was no precedent for it for me. And I had to think about what it meant to use my own naked body as artist and model. And that becomes really complicated when you don't have that long history yeah. of artists, which is why I think right now there's this amazing amount of young women making figurative painting. And it'd be so interesting to hear what we're all thinking about. But really, it was kind of, yeah. So yes, to answer the original question, it was a reaction against my father painting my nude mother. This was the way that I could depict myself in its truest way. I think throughout my education, there was a constantly a battling against what I knew of painting, which was that history that you're saying, like cis, white, male painting of female nudes. Then there's my father doing the same thing. And I loved the romance that there was between this painter, my father, and his wife, my mother, as muse, you know, seeing those relationships in Picasso or even Vermeer. It's yeah. like, I did depict my ex for many years until he <laughs> said, please stop painting me naked. <laughs> and so I stopped. But as I kept on looking at myself, it just gradually deconstructed and deconstructed into finding this way of putting my body onto the surface. And yes, instead of looking objectively, I'm looking internally. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about from my father's perspective. It would be so interesting to see, and maybe you can think of some white men who are looking at their body in that yeah. way. Vito Akanchi, maybe. But painters, like who, who are some male painters that are deconstructing and self-analyzing. An artist I love is Doran Langberg, who's based in New York. He creates this beautiful figurative painting, often of male gay relationships. And they're just so, I don't know, they're so charged and they're so loaded, but the colors that he uses are so kind of touch-like. It's sort of hard to describe how color creates this touch and how color can kind of almost transport you to kind of feeling or something. I'm always so fascinated by artists who use such abnormal colors I guess it's like you know why do you put like a green in the middle of an Alice Neal or something it's like why does Maria Lassenegg use that blue and then when I see your work <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by it because it, it almost feels quite rooted in art history in the sense that you do have these kind of art historical symbols these penetrating shapes almost feel like these divine interventions but maybe that's completely my imagination you know Louis Fertino yeah, Louis Fertino also looking at his own relationships. Oh, I love his work. Oh, I take it back. Oh, man. He made a painting of a dude giving birth out of his asshole. <laughs> Fucking awesome. I take it back. There's my man right there. Oh, geez, these paintings are so good. Doran Lambert's also really good. Okay, I'm going back to what you were saying. Divine interventions. Oh, my gosh. It's so... <laughs> fun when people use terms like <laughs> sacred like 
and divine. Oh, I grew up so non-religious. It's hard to talk about those terms in relationship to my work. It seems like such a beautiful way to describe it. I guess it's hard because the divine intervention seems like it came from outside. Whereas these decisions I've made are so planned, planned from its birth in my sketchbook with a line drawing to a pastel drawing to then like diagram it out for whoever is going to help me build up the surface to then painting it over and over again. But I mean, I guess you could say it's a divine intervention in so many different ways, you know, like a work like Beacon from 2018. And it doesn't have to be a kind of like spiritual divine intervention. It could be like a kind of, you know, the, the crossing of the body or something. Yeah, Beacon, I think what's really a driver for me is the sense of light and this intense chiaroscuro, light to dark, forms protruding from the surface, being actually enhanced by illusory depictions of light. There is a permanent sense of pulsating or or movement that's embedded in the object, but there's a character always present. And that's light. I almost think of light as the character that's driving the narrative of the work. And a lot of times there's like a central light force or the mandorla, which I use as my vagina, is the source of light that's kind of spilling out onto everything else. Or a lot of times I'll create this OG shape, which I think of as my breast, and that'll be a source of light. But that's all in service to the form of the painting. It's more like, okay, the breast is sitting at the bottom as a formal structure to support this baby shape that's on top. And then I kind of put all these other meanings on top, but it kind of always is started with the architectural visual presence of the painting physicality itself. But before I even get to that, I'm like, I, I am in my sketchbook thinking like, oh man, in the middle of the night last night, I was pumping. And my pump fell off and breast milk spilled everywhere. And I need to figure out how to make a painting of that. So there's that preliminary thought, that little egg of an idea. And then the greater concepts of painting and form come on top of that. And a lot of times when I deal with color, I'm dealing with it in service to the painting. And sometimes I'm servicing the thought behind what I'm depicting. Like if it's a vagina area, I'm going to make that red because that's a bloody birthing vagina. And then that red will instruct how I create the rest of the painting. But I mentioned in the introduction about this autobiographical notion, and I've read that your works serve as abstracted self-portraits that also reveal your inner psyche at the time of the work's creation. I mean, how are the works autobiographical? The show that I did at Pace's Gallery in London was all about getting pregnant, the act of conception. So there was a painting I made called Direct Shot, and that's a penis with balls (laughs) shooting (laughs) into a vagina. And when I say that, you think of like some pornographic image, but I was deconstructing that original image that was in my sketchbook into what it became as a painting, which is kind of two puzzle pieces. So basically it turned into two shapes, one with a hole and one with a tube that came towards each other with a source of light coming out of the tube, piercing into the hole. 
And in that way, for me, I got to play around with this stream of light, these two really aggressive, dominant shapes, and this muted background, which pushed these forward. <laughs> like each of those paintings comes from a very sexual place. The work that was in Plumline, my first solo show with Pace in New York, I made a bunch of self-portraits of which I kind of broke my body up into parts and kind of restructured them in each painting. And each restructuring was a different stage of actually being pregnant. So in that way, like it was just me. I wasn't looking to my partner to have different conversations with. So that show was much less sexual for me and more introverted. I guess I was making that work because I needed some structure. Like my whole body was kind of like breaking down at the time, like literally falling apart. My belly was going out. My feet were swollen. So I, I feel like with that work, I was trying to make control in these self-portraits by organizing everything in this center spine of my figure. And there was like an attempt at control in those paintings that I didn't have in my actual life at the time. Whereas the work at the show in London was all about fun sensuality and not letting go of control. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. But I also think it's really interesting the fact that at that show at Pace in London, am I right in thinking that you hadn't actually given birth at that point? So then we come to Plumline a year later on and you're pregnant again. And is it like trying to explain or translate the realities of what it's like in a female body that has gone through all these different processes? I mean, it's the subject matter that's constantly changing for me at this time of life and I'm making babies and my body's changing and growing and contracting and getting fat and getting skinny and getting hungry it's like <laughs> breastfeeding now and I'm like hungry all the time and I, I'm constantly feeling amazing <laughs> just like ravenous but actually there was this really awesome quote that was put in pairing with my show going soft on the online viewing yeah. room at Pace yeah. by Singa Ningudi. It's freaking awesome. I love her work so much, but I hadn't heard this quote yet. It's, I just had my two children and was fascinated with this issue of pregnancy. How you expand beyond all recognition sometimes. And then your body is so resilient and just bounces back into shape. Well, pretty much so. There was also the elasticity of the psyche during pregnancy, this constant resilience that the body enacts. I loved that quote. Yeah. I definitely relate to that so much in how I'm thinking about making work these past few years. And especially since I had my first child and then within like six months got pregnant again. <laughs> my second child. So I was really like a rubber band, just like expanding yeah. and contracting. But it's really awesome being a woman and being able to have babies and have those experiences with my own body, like these really physical experiences, like my body is a sculpture. And then the brain then reacts with these psychological intensities, almost being like on some kind of weird drug. You're yeah. just like, oh my God, I didn't know I had such intense <laughs> emotions. But I feel for men who can't give birth, you know, yeah. I really do. Because there's just this constant 
source of inspiration. But I think that's what I was kind of talking about earlier with this kind of divine intervention. It's like you're completely changing your physical shape. I mean, I've never I've never been pregnant, so I don't know. But just from looking at your work, it's almost as though you construct your sculptures as these almost systems in this strange cycle. And also that work postpartum from Plumline is so interesting because it's almost like this clock or something. It's like the cycle. And it's not just like the body contracting and subtracting. It's also the mind is whirling in its own way. And it's so fascinating seeing this part abstracted, figurative, geometric portrayal of the body. Is it abstract? I don't know. (laughs) There's this line that I walk on between abstraction and figuration. And I love this line. It's so right. And that's kind of like how being a pregnant woman is. You have control over yourself. You can see yourself as this formed figure. But then the next moment you've broken down into complete abstraction and chaos and you like have total loss of control. And I feel like I'm constantly walking this line of trying to pull myself together and (laughs) just accept that I've fallen apart. And that's what I'm making the work about, trying to find that place. I mean, three years ago today, did you ever imagine your work would go in this direction? (laughs) No, I mean, I had started to talk about the kind of beginnings of this work. It started with a very aggressive experience in my body, and that was having an abortion. And getting pregnant stimulated this brain chemistry and physical body changes that I think were just impossible to not make art about. And so I stopped what I was doing before and kind of reimagined painting my vagina in this abstract way that was more reminiscent of the sensorial and mental feelings that I was going through being pregnant and then deciding to get the abortion that led down this path that I'm on now. And I really like imagining like what 30 years down the road, four years down the road, what my body's going to be doing, how it's going to be changing, and what elements of my mind are going to be put into the work. Because, I mean, if you really look deep into yourself and objectively look at yourself as well, each day you are seeing these extreme changes happening on a microcosmic level. Like even as we get older, we have more control over certain emotions that might have like sent us off spiraling down a depression. But I think that's so interesting. I mean, the works that have really struck and have also just stayed with me as well from your Going Soft series, which is this such fascinating online presentation because it was created just in the past few months when lockdown started, when you were heavily pregnant. Yeah, I started those drawings when quarantine happened and I brought all my pastel supplies to my house and I was pretty pregnant. So I was happy to not be walking to my studio every day. And I just started making these George O'Keefe inspired drawings, which then turned into more open-ended geometric. I can't talk about this work yet because I literally, I just, I just, (laughs) I'm still making them like right now. I know, some of it's like June the 1st, 2020. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so fresh. I came home with the quarantine and pulled out my George O'Keefe book and looked at some flowers and made a little vagina portrait. And then from there... The next one I made was trickle down as a kind of metaphor for the government, how those like boobs 
of full of milk or at the top and just like not hitting anyone. And there's these faces at the bottom trying oh my to reach. Gosh, yeah. But then I was like also starting to get super full of milk because I was about to give birth. And then I made this perspective from above and below, like what it looked like from right before birth to after birth. Yeah. And the middle, like that kind of journey down this birth path. I'm still trying to think about how to depict that because it's, it's so undescribable, this journey. Of birth and especially birth in a pandemic as well yes birth in a pandemic so there's this really good quote from carvel wallace in this new york times piece trying to parent my black teenagers through protests and pandemic let me read you this quote i remember when my son was being born and the midwife described labor quote on one side there are all the women who have not given birth and on the other there are all the mothers welcoming you with love and open arms. And in the middle is a long, dark path that you and only you must walk alone, end quote. And it's that element of the long, dark path that you and only you must walk alone that I really want to figure out how to make work about. And that experience leaves you so quickly because it's so intense. It's really hard to hang on to the memory of that experience. I feel like when I've talked to friends and they are trying to experience that deep bearing down of labor, it's either like a fiery pit or a black metal bullet. It's like really these visceral descriptions. And the reason we get pregnant again is because we totally forget how insanely painful it is yeah. so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I really love that quote as the kind of moving between worlds. and. It also kind of is not mentioning the pain. It's like, there's this dark path. Yeah, That pain is your pain to describe, but it is dark and it is lonely. Yeah. I gave birth to my daughter, Juniper, on April 29th. And that was an experience to make some paintings about. I just, it's, it's like just happened in April. So I haven't really been able to figure out how to like dig deep into that. Some of the drawings from going softer, kind of looking at that from a more outside view. But I feel like I could get even deeper with that. Yes, oh my gosh, the drawing that totally blew me away was the one with the multiple perspectives from April 23rd. And I should add to people listening that they are all dated, which is so interesting because you can tell that you made this like a week before you gave birth. And it has this incredible yellow central light source that feels very divine. And then these translucent shapes of the face and the body from below, almost like a Joan Semmel painting, that are contracting and retracting almost as though it's breathing or something. I love that drawing. I was making that one actually as a way to meditate on the birth that I was about to go through. Because I'd had a baby already, I knew how insanely painful it was going to be. So I used that drawing as a way to like meditate on the stages. There's like these different elements of facial expression. And then in that drawing, I drew, I it was the first drawing that I did these like vein lines in. Yeah. And I was trying to think like how all these stages are connected. And I liked those little hesitant, shaky lines. I want to try and use them more because it was a nice thread to bring throughout the elements. Yeah, they feel a bit more kind of real or something than the perfection of your painting. Yeah. It's actually funny. I drew those lines and then... After I gave birth, the midwives cut open the placenta and they kind of unfolded it. 
And it was literally the most beautiful, flowery, growing organism. I had no idea that there was something that beautiful like inside this whole time. And it's funny, it looked just like those lines, just these shaky vessels. God, the placenta is crazy. Totally. But I, I want to go back to your beginnings, though, because, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but you grew up in Northern California in the 80s and 90s. And, I mean, how was that place growing up? I mean, you were obviously surrounded by art with your parents, but was art something that you were always interested in? And were you kind of influenced by the landscape that was around you? Definitely. And art was always a part of my life because my dad was teaching at UC Davis during the time that Wayne Thiebaud, Roy yeah. DeForest, Robert Arneson, like all these amazing painters and sculptors were there. And I got to see them every once in a while, like when we'd have parties at our house or Thanksgiving. But I always knew about them as these like super influential Northern California dudes. So that was there on one side. But then the other side of it was my mom's kind of hippy dippy, do it yourself. She built our house. You know, she's a really amazing woodworker. She was a seamstress. She would make a lot of my clothes growing up. She had, you know, there's four of us. So she would, she kind of stopped making clothes after the second one. And she's like, oh man, I'm just going to the thrift store. You know, she'd go to the thrift store and like alter things. And that was almost more of an influence than my dad. When I was younger, I wanted to become a fashion designer. Like I actually applied to this school in Northern California, but it, had a really great fashion design program and I got in with a full ride with all my funky dresses I'd made when I was (laughs) in high school. And they were all really about the body. Like I was making these dresses with like big fake boobs and built into them and big pannier hoop skirts. But when I finally came down to crunch time, I decided to go to a liberal arts school and I wanted free reign to make whatever kind of art I wanted to make and decided ultimately to go to UC Santa Barbara, where there was this kind of open-ended art program that I could take like any art class I wanted. I didn't have to take many preliminary classes. I could just take art. And I feel like the light of California, both in Northern California and in Southern California, has definitely been something that's like seared itself into my soul. And when I moved to New York in 2007, I came to upstate New York to go to do a residency at Salem Artworks up north and stayed up there for a whole summer and kind of really quickly realized that the sense of light was so different. Like, in, I feel like in the East Coast, it's dappled. Like, it's always coming through trees and it's yeah. like held down by humidity. There's just something heavy and round about the light in the East Coast. In California, it's just blaring open. <laughs> piercing like a sword there's stopping it yeah and I feel like the light that I'm constantly grappling with in my work is that like searing source of intense light and I'm like trying to control it within my body or something but it's like shooting out when I was growing up I was looking at a lot of these you had mentioned something I think in an email conversation about Baroque it's really interesting that you say that because A lot of the artists that I grew up looking at in works pulled out of art books hanging on my dad's studio walls was Vermeer, a Dutch Baroque, Rembrandt, and Caravaggio. (laughs) But like that kind of chiaroscuro and like orange light or like a sunlight 
determining how the structure of the composition is going to go, like the light becoming the character. It's so yeah. interesting because those are like kind of exclusively the works that were on the wall of my dad's studio, that kind of Baroque sense of light, which is where, you know, my dad grew up in the East Coast. So it makes sense that he would be in tune with the Vermeer dappled light that's coming through a window. It's interesting thinking about how where artists come from informs their sense of light in the painting when they are dealing with light sources. But also interesting kind of like almost looking at a landscape as well. I feel like, again, sorry, I'm probably merging so many of your artworks together, but you know, there is this idea that the figure can be kind of some kind of landscape as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I really want to explore that idea more. And I, all of my paintings have been vertical. But with this going oh, soft yes. show, I didn't know I was going to make these drawings into a show. Like I was in the middle of quarantine making these drawings. But some of those are, are in a horizontal position. So I want to figure out how to actually have a more direct relationship with a kind of a historical landscape and my body. That's the future. I mean, they really are landscapes, especially the work in the Plum Line show. And some of the paintings, there's these two half spheres at the bottom that create this like shelf space. And I think about that shelf space as like a horizon line yeah. on which the body sits. Yeah. So I guess I'm really interested to know about the evolution of your work. I mean, when did your works begin to shift into the language that they are now with these sculptural elements? Well, you know, that moment I mentioned earlier where my an ex said, please, please don't draw me anymore, was a pretty crucial moment in realizing that whoever I bring into my work is an individual and should have a voice in how I'm depicting them. And so that really led me to just looking at my own body. And then from there, I did a series of self-portraits where I was like holding mirrors up to my vagina. They were all very kind of cartoony, abstract, like faux <laughs> naive, Henri Rousseau style. And then in the mirror, I'm also looking at the viewer. And then in other paintings, there's like peacocks and other symbolic animals and plants, like the cactus. I was painting a lot of cacti. <laughs> that were symbolic of an aggressive, self-sustaining woman. Don't get close to her. She'll stab you with her needles. <laughs> and so I started making paintings of just cacti. And those were symbols of myself and my self-reliance. And then from there, I had that experience of, you know, getting pregnant and having the abortion and realized there were no objects that could describe that experience like it had to be abstract like I had to use the language of color and shapes and textures to create that experience and that is when I really started looking to Georgia O'Keeffe for guidance I knew that she had always said her works aren't self-portraits or aren't vaginas but that's not how I read it and I think it's open for interpretation she didn't call herself a feminist but it's the time she was in and the men she was around and then that kind of led me to Agnes Pilton and looking at how to abstract a landscape. Oh, and Hilma. I discovered yes. Hilma around this time also, 2014. Yeah. And I know they were really into this sacred geometry, transcendentalism, and, you know, a kind of religious level yeah. of practice. And if I took that out of it and thought of, my own body as the 
sources of divine intervention. That is how I could move into abstraction because it seemed just so open-ended. There's like a comfort in describing something, in illustrating something. There's also a sense of proving that you can paint something realistically. And when you let go of that, when you're rendering open-ended forms, I feel like I was like letting go of proving that I could paint or something. And what effect do you want your work to have on the viewer? I don't want it to have any one effect. And I, I really like that it's had an effect on a diverse group of people. And I like when a straight dude offers their interpretation or you've offered your interpretation. I love that everyone comes at it differently and everyone's relationship to certain colors is so informed by their own history that color is just extremely loaded. And I would hope that there isn't one experience. And ultimately I want there to be that just retinal potency that stays with you as the viewer. And also, I really want there to be a desire to see it in person. I yeah. love our Instagram culture. I love that Instagram like can share an image so quickly and make you excited about the idea of the image. But I, I hope that when you see it in the flesh, that you'll have that immediate experience with the objectness of it. Because it is an object. A painting is not a group of pixels, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even a, a more flat painting whether it's like has super viscous gooey paint or really soft paint, like every painted surface has a skin to it and you have to experience that skin. And I try to be like really generous with my surfaces and I spend a lot of time on them. You know, I render and obsessively render and go back and try to be loose and then try to get tight again. I'm just like <laughs> constantly battling with the surface. Yeah. And I hope that that is visible when you go up close to the work. And I use some elements like sponging. I use the scouring side of a sponge to apply a kind of a stippled texture in certain areas. When you go up close, you're like, oh shit, how is that applied? Yeah. And I hope elements like that pull the viewer in even closer. Definitely. And I just can't stress enough for people listening to witness your work in real life because it is just such a magical experience. But Louis, thank you so much for coming on. This has been such an incredible insight. But as it says the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> you know, I, I always thought I would say George O'Keefe just because she's such an icon. Yep. And then after that, Frida Kahlo. But I almost feel like there's something so performative about their life and performative about their practice. Like they brought the camera crew in. They were really conscious of their style. Yeah. And conscious of their presence and their place in history. And I, I'm so happy that that was possible for them. But in that way, I almost feel like maybe I know them a little bit. I don't know them, but I, I feel like I would have to say it would be someone more like Agnes Pelton. Yeah. Or even Louise Bourgeois. I yeah. know there's a lot written about her, but she made work in obscurity for quite a while. And yeah, that's such a hard question. You'd have to have a dinner party with all of them. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like Agnes Pelton living out in the middle of nowhere in California 
getting involved in transcendental religious experiences. Yeah. She'd be a really fascinating person to like sit outside and have a cup of tea with. And also she'd probably just kind of a weirdo, you know, yeah. like or Hilma <laughs> off Clint. I feel like Hilma was probably kind That's of a so weirdo. mysterious. <laughs> yeah. I want to do episodes on them because I just can't find enough information about who they were. <laughs> right. Yeah, I want to meet the weirdos, the kind of obscure, <laughs> obscure weirdos. Amazing. Thank you so much, Noe. Thank you all so much for listening to the 36th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Loie Hollowell. It was such a fascinating insight into her practice and I can't express how brilliant and magical her works are when witnessed in the flesh. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amma Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 